Parshat Vayetchanan, it's a pleasure to be back and to share with you some wonderful Divrei Torah from the Mikdash HaLevi, Sefer Mikdash HaLevi, written by my late grandfather, Yosef Tzvi HaLevi Duna, who was the Ravid in London, uh, and uh, really tremendous material every single week, one after another Divrei Torah, which are just perfect, beautiful. And this, fir- this first one is just a Cheshben one. You'll see in a second what I mean. And then we'll get to the second one, which is kind of the meat of what I'm going to say, and we'll have a third one as well. So this first one is a fascinating, uh, a fascinating Cheshben. That means a calculation that's based on a number that appears in Rashi at the beginning of the Parsha. So so I prayed to Hashem, you know, there's many different words in Hebrew for prayer. You know, the Eskimos have got lots of different words for snow. In Judaism, the snow of Judaism, or the comparable snow as in the Eskimo world, is prayer. In Judaism, for the Jewish people, since the dawn of our history, prayer is such an important function of who we are and what we represent. And there's many different words for prayer in, in Hebrew. And Vo'eschanon, Hashem, Hashem, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was praying to Hashem. He wanted very much to go into Eretz Yisrael. Vo'eschanon el Hashem, That particular moment in time. And Rashi is going to tell us what that moment was. And then we're going to look at another, another Chazal, which is brought in Rashi, which tells us a little bit about the word Vo'eschanon. When was Ba'isahi? What was that particular moment in time when he began to pray? And why did he begin to pray then to be admitted into Eretz Yisrael that the uh, decree that God had made that he would never enter into the promised land would be somehow withdrawn and he could then um, go to the place that he really wanted, that his heart desired. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, after I had beaten in battle the forces of Sichon, who was the king of the Amorites, Melech Ha'emori, Va'oig, and Og, who was the king of Bashan, after I had beaten them in battle, Domisi, I thought to myself, Shemahutar Haneder, maybe the uh, vow that God had made not to allow me into Israel had been somehow annulled. And we're going to look into that and we're going to parallel it with something else. Hine. Behold, the Yalkut Shemoni. In the Yalkut, in the Medrash, it says, Motzinu Shemosh Rabbeinu Ispalel, Taktu Tfilois. What's Taktu? Tof Kuf Tesvav. That Moshe Rabbeinu davened 515 separate prayers. Bichdei She Yizkeli Kones in order that he may merit entering into the land. How do we know that, he, that this specific number is the number uh, that he prayed, the number of prayers that he prayed? It works out if you separate out the word into its individual component letters. You'll discover if you add up the numerical value of each of those letters, the gematria process, you end up with 515. And that means, v'eschanon, which is this unusual word for prayer, v'eschanon el Hashem. I prayed 515 separate times to Hashem that He should allow me to enter into Eretz Yisrael. That's why 
that's why the word Vaishanon is used to convey this kind of subliminal message that it was 515 prayers. And when did he do it? Ba'ishahi, he did it now, if you're going to look, if you're going to now parallel this, this Yalkut, this Medrash with Rashi, When did he begin praying? He began praying after following his victory against Sichon and Oig. Because now he thought to himself, now one second, let's see what, what's happening here. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means that I was able to enter into the land of Sichon and into the land of Oig? Do you know what it means? Because we know that that area which is today called the country of Jordan, has an element of the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. We know that two and a half tribes lived there. It's not quite the same Kedusha as Eretz Yisrael, but it's got Miktsas Kedushasa. Some element of the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael also exists in that piece of territory that's Eretz Sichoin V'aig, and therefore he felt that somehow things might have changed, that somehow things had moved in his direction positively. He was permitted to participate in the conquest of the land of Sichon and the land of Oig, and therefore this vow, this decree that God had made that he should not be allowed to inherit Israel was no longer as powerful, was no longer as relevant as it had been before these two battles had taken place. Kavar Hutar Miktsas haneder, somehow an element of the vow, an element of the decree, an element of the forbiddenness had been annulled, had been reduced. The neder shehutar miktsasai hutar kuloi, and we have a principle that when a neder has been somewhat annulled, it has been completely annulled. Now that we know this piece of information from Rashi that when this occurred was after the victory against Sichon and Oig, that this Cheshben has somehow, the number of Tfilois that he davened is somehow related to the moment in time when the Tfilois occurred, when they began happening. That's what the Mikdash Halevi says, as I'm going to explain. Let's look into it a little bit more closely. Aroin HaKohen. Moshe Rabbeinu's brother Aaron, Nifta Barishan Lechodesh HaChamishi. When did he die? Do you know when he died? He died on the first of Av. Listen to this Cheshman. It's unbelievable. It's beautiful and it's perfect. Aaron HaKoyen, the high priest Aaron, brother of Moshe Rabbeinu, dies on the first of Av. Now, after he died, what happened then? Immediately after Aaron HaKohen died, you have to look at Bamidba Perik Kofalaf, you'll see that there were eight separate journeys that occurred after Aharon died. Now, listen carefully. We know that every journey occurred at the daytime. They, ne they never traveled at night. They never journeyed during the night time. The Ilu Balaylo Shela Achrov Chonu Yisrael Lelinas Laila. 
after each journey, they spent the night wherever they were. They encamped wherever they were. So all of those eight journeys took place during the day. And at night, the journey ended and they rested overnight in the particular place where they found themselves. Nimtza, listen, we're back to the Cheshben again. Nimtza, Kishmoinas Hamasois, we discover having made this Cheshben, that these eight journeys, histayamu b'tisha ba'av, when did they end? They ended after eight days. One, first of Av, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth of Av. Now they rested overnight. It's now the ninth of Av, b'tisha ba'av. Oz, at that moment in time, nerach mispeid la'aroin hakoin. That's when they began eulogizing Aaron on the ninth of Av. And it makes sense because we know we know that the ninth of Av is a day that's designated, has been established as the correct day for mourning from then and for all future time, for, for the entirety of Jewish history. So the ninth of Av was when they said Hespedim for Aharon. Okay, got it? Right. The Cheshbon continues. After the Hesped, the eulogy, and the particularly intense mourning that took place on the 9th of Av, there was now a 30-day, what we call the Shloshim period, the 30-day mourning period that follows the um, intense mourning period that we have at the beginning. We, we call that the Shiva. They did this intensely for one day. And following that, they kept 30 days, Shloshim, days of mourning. When is that? So what, 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 what is the 30th day? Listen carefully. When did those days end? They ended on the 9th of Elul, because that's the 31st day. The 9th of Elul is the day after the Shloshim that began on Tisha B'Av. After the 30 days of mourning, that's when the battles began with King Sichon and King Oig, these two kings that stood up against the Jewish people and that needed to be beaten. That's when the battles began. Okay, now the Cheshbon is going to continue. There were three stages, three separate set-piece battles that took place in the Melchemes, uh, in the battles, in the war between the Jewish nation and Sichon and Oig and Emoiri. The first stage. This was a battle against Sichon himself. The king had his own army and his own military, and they fought against the Jewish people. Because they came out, they weren't in Emoiri, they weren't in the land of Emoiri, they came out to battle the Jewish people. That battle took place, that was the first set piece battle that took place between the Jewish nation and their opponents. And it says in the Posuk, listen carefully, and the Jewish people beat them, by sword, and in that way they inherited, they took possession of his land, and they took it from Arnoin till Yaboik, until the Ammonite nation, because Az is the as the name of a place, it also means it's very strong, there was a very strong border between Emori 
or whatever it was that Sichon was fighting, and the Bnei Amoin. So we know that that is what took place in the first set-piece battle. Hamaroch the second one. His Now, they went to battle. The Jewish people now returned. They went on an offensive battle against the Amorites. So the initial battle was a defensive battle uh, uh, between the Melech of Emoiri, Sichoin, and the Jewish nation. He'd come out to fight them where they were. Now they went and they went an offensive battle against Emoiri themselves. What does the Posuk say? You can look at Perik Chof Aleph, Posuk Lamud Base. Vayishlach Moichel Ragel. Moshe sent out spies. Yazer Vayilkudu. Binus, uh, Yazer is a place. Vayilkudu Binus. Binoiseha, and and they smote, or they somehow took possession of the dependencies. It wasn't just the land itself. There were little groups around them that were part of the greater whole. And they dispossessed the Amorites who were there. So there was there was this battle, this set piece battle that took place between the Jewish nation and the Amorites. That was the second stage of the three stages of battle. What about the third stage? That was something that took place against Oig, who was the king of Boshon. The and the Posuk says, what does it say? And they smote him. They were victorious against him and his sons, and his entire nation. There was absolutely nothing left of him. Oig Melech Haboshan was wiped out in battle. He was left with absolutely nothing. And they took possession of his land. So those were the three stages of the battle between the Jewish people, Sichoin, Emoiri, and Oig. Seeing as we know that every battle that's ever mentioned in Tanakh, never took longer than one day. Uh, the battles in those days were not things that took place over a long period of time. They were set-piece battles that took place between two armies. And they took a day, and whoever ended up with more soldiers or more territory, they were the winners. As we find, uh, and this is proven from the fact that in the battle between Avraham, Avinu, Abraham, and the five kings, uh, and the four kings, on behalf of the five kings, so we see that it, it was overnight, they got there, they fought the battle, and it was over. Um, and similarly, we find in the battle that Yehoshua battled against the Gibeonites uh, in Givain, he took possession of the land, but the day didn't, didn't last long enough, and the sun never set, and therefore there was light, and they could continue the battle until the end of the day. Another proof that a battle in Tanakh always takes one day and one day only. Nimtza Eifotza. Now, you were holding cup. If you were thinking carefully, then you know that we were now ninth of Elul. That's where we had got to. The three stages of the battle between the Jewish people and Sichon, um, Emoiri, and Oig. When did it take place? It took three days. And we know that it must have taken place 
after the completion of the 30 days of mourning for Harun, when was the first battle? Because we know that finished on the 30th of Elul. That's when they got themselves back together. Therefore, the three battles that took place, first battle took place on the 10th of Elul. The second battle took place on the 11th and the third on the 12th. So we've now reached the 12th of Elul. Now, we know from Rashi, what he said before was that the prayers only began, Moshe only began praying once he knew that he had been allowed to take possession of and enter into the lands of Sichon and Oig, which had this kind of um, gray area status of not being Eretz but being not Chutzla Eretz either. Somewhere in between, they had somewhat the Kedusha of Eretz if not quite the Kedusha of Eretz And therefore he thought that at this stage, well, if I've been allowed into them, perhaps I'll be allowed into Eretz So he began his prayers to enter into Eretz into the Promised Land, because he wanted to take advantage of the fact that he'd been allowed into the land of um, Emoiri and into the land of um, of Oig that he'd taken possession of these territories which had this kind of Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. When was the first time he davened? Well, we know until the end of the 12th of Elul, it couldn't have happened because he hadn't yet taken possession of the land of Oig So he began davening on the 13th of Elul. Okay? He's still keeping the Cheshman? You're still there with us? Okay, fantastic. 13th of Elul, he begins davening. And so he davened from the 13th of Elul until the day he died, which was the 7th of Adar, of the, of the, which was at the end of that calendar year. Well, actually, the, the year began in Tishrei, but the following Adar... That's when he stopped davening because we know that he died on Zion Adar. If we work out exactly the number of days between the 13th and the 6th, 13th of Elul and the 6th of Adar, all inclusive of those days, how many days do we get? Between these two dates, how many days are there? There are exactly 171 days between Yud Gimel Elul, including that day, and Vov Adar, which was the 6th of Adar, the day before Moshe Rabbeinu died. There's exactly 171 days. The Naniach. And obviously, he davened three separate tefillahs on each of those days. We know that each day has three separate tefillahs. Shachris, Mincha and Mariv. It begins with Mariv, but we say Shachris, Mincha, Mariv. So on the 13th of, uh, of Elul, in the night, right after the end of the 12th of Elul, he began davening Mariv. That was the first tefillah of the Vaischanon El Hashem of uh, the prayers that he prayed to Hashem to be allowed into Eretz Yisrael. How many tefillahs do you have? 171 times 3. 
you can take out your calculator you don't need to i can i can tell you what the number is it's 513 separate prayers tof kuf yud gimel ochen now listen carefully when did Moshe Rabbeinu die? He died at some point during the day on the 7th of Adar. So on Zayin Adar, he still had two opportunities to daven. He davened Mariv and he davened Shachris. And in that way, he adds a further two to this calculation of how many Tfilos he managed to daven between Yud Gimel uh, Elul and when he died in Zayn Adar. What is that? What is, what is the total sum of the number? So we have 513 plus 2. The number is 515. Goes according to the Medrash, according to Rashi. The whole thing fits in. It's quite unbelievable. The Cheshben of Tfilis that Moshe Rabbeinu davened, that he beseeched Hashem to allow him into Eretz Yisrael, perfectly fits the period of time between the end of the battles between Sichon Oig and the Jewish people and when Moshe Rabbeinu died on Zayn Adar. That's the first Vatorah. The second one is the prayer itself. Allow me to see the land. Let me travel and see. Let me go over the Yardin River and let me see the land. This beautiful land that's over the River Jordan. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I want to go into Eretz and I'd like to see it. Yodua HaKushya. Everybody knows the very famous, well-known question. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu say, I want to cross over the Jordan, I want to go into the land, and I want to see it? Why does he need to say, Why does he need to mention that he's going to see the land? Obviously, he's going to see it. Would anyone have thought he's going to go in there and wear blindfold? Of course not. If he goes into Eretz Yisrael, he's going to see Eretz Yisrael. It's obvious and absolutely guaranteed that he's going to see Eretz Yisrael if he goes into Eretz Yisrael. Therefore, why bother saying We know. Those who explain the Posik actually adds a word. It says, I want to see a Sa'oretz Hatova. Why would he say that? So the Mephorshim say an interesting pshat. They say, I only want to see the wonderful things of Eretz Yisrael. I don't want to see anything negative. But it's I want to see the, the, those aspects of the land which, from which we can derive the obligations that we have in terms of our relationship with Hashem. I, I don't want to see anything negative. I don't want to participate in any of the criticism that may exist. In other words, I don't want to be one of the Maraglim. I know I sent the Maraglim, they were good people, and they fouled up very badly. They did a terrible job and they came back and had nothing positive to say. I don't want to be that. I want to see. That's what he's saying. I want you to make sure, Hashem, that I see. 
I don't want to, I don't even notice. I want to have rose-tinted spectacles, rose-tinted glasses. I want to look through those glasses and see the most positive things that there are to see about Israel. But having that in mind, we can offer another slightly different explanation. We know for sure that going into Eretz Yisrael has a unique and wonderful aspect to it, which is that you can keep all the mitzvahs which are tluyim ba'aretz, which uh, um, which uh, somehow you you can't keep them outside of Eretz Yisrael. You can't keep truma. You can't keep maser. There's many aspects of Eretz Yisrael which are unique to Eretz Yisrael. Mitzvahs are tluyos ba'aretz. Ulam milvadzois. Besides for this, Yeshna Kedusha Miochedas, there's actually a unique, uh, a almost supernatural Kedusha, which is, which is beyond the Kedusha that we're used to. We understand what Kedusha is. We sometimes feel Kedusha in Chutzlaretz. I don't live in necessarily in a place where there's a lot of Kedusha hanging about, but you do feel Kedusha. Maybe you have to create it yourself, but that Kedusha does exist. But there is a unique type of Kedusha, which can only be found in Eretz Yisrael, what the Mikdash HaLevi calls Roimamus Nisgova, a sublime elevation. Luchnius Tzerufa Ba Melea Eretz Yisrael, there is a pure spirituality that fills the land of Israel. And this incredible elevation this unique elevation, this unique spirituality, this purity of spirituality, you need to see it, you need to understand it, appreciate it, you need to feel it, and you need to soak it up. There's a, you kind of need to put on a different pair of glasses when, you want, when you're looking for this type of Kedusha. It's not the ordinary day-to-day aspects of living in a special place. You need to be able to appreciate it. You know, when you're a tourist and you go to a place which you've never been to before, you see it in a way that nobody who lives in that place ever sees it. All the vivid colours and the beautiful aspects of that particular place, or sometimes the opposite, some of the, the terrible things in that place, which nobody ever notices because they're so used to it and they see it all the time, you're there and you, and you really feel it. You hear the noise, you hear the sounds, you smell the smells, you, you completely appreciate your surroundings in a way that no person who's a regular uh, person in that location who lives there all the time ever sees. But that's something which you, if you do live in a place and you don't appreciate your surroundings, which you have to work on on a daily basis. You've got to either wake up in the morning, I live in a really special place, or I live in a place which has this aspect or that aspect, which is so unique, and I've got to notice it. I've got to appreciate it. You know, I live in Los Angeles, California. You wake up every morning, the sun is shining. You know, I come from a place where you woke up every morning in England, and the sky was grey. So I wake up every morning, I look out of my window and the sky is blue and the sun is shining and you, you really appreciate it. That's what we mean by saying You've got to see it, in other words it's, you've got to be conscious of it, then you've got to feel it and you've got to soak it up. Now we're not talking about the sun shining and the sky being blue, we're talking about this 
this sublime elevation. That is something that requires an, an extra eye, a different kind of eye, so that you can see it in order to feel it and soak it up. There's no question about it. That somebody goes into Eretz Yisrael, he's going to eat from its fruit. is going to do the, all the mitzvahs which are clear by Eretz. It's very possible you do all those things and you don't fully appreciate your surroundings, where you are. It's just regular life for you. You know, there's people who come to Eretz Yisrael and they're completely overwhelmed. They come there, they kiss the ground. For them, every brick, every stone, every house, every synagogue, every yeshiva, every person is so amazing, is so special. I mean, how is it possible that these people don't appreciate where they live, what they are a part of, the miracle of Eretz Yisrael, the spirituality of the Holy Land? How is it that because you, you come from outside, you're never there, and you truly appreciate it. But it's possible to live in Eretz Yisrael and do all the mitzvahs that nobody else outside of Eretz Yisrael can do and still not fully understand and fully appreciate how special the country is. In order to feel that spiritual elevation, you need to sharpen and strengthen all of your faculties. Without being mechadeid, your chushim, you will never feel it. You'll never truly appreciate what Eretz Yisrael is. He wasn't satisfied simply to ask Hashem that he can enter into the land, because it's possible to be in the land and not fully appreciate it. He's saying to Hashem, I want to go into the land. But also, I want to really appreciate it. Give me the kalim to fully appreciate Eretz Yisrael. This sublime elevation that is in the Holy Land. That is a kind of separate request. It's not Ebrona, it's Vaere. I want to not just go there and physically be there. I want to see it. I want to fully appreciate how special it is. Even though it's true to say that Hashem never acceded to his request to allow him into the promised land, we do find that God said to him, Go to the, uh, to the top of Pisgah, and cast your eye. I want you to look in all four directions. And you should see with your eyes. Well, why was he telling him to do that? He was telling him to do that because he says, I'm never going to let you into the land. But go to the top of the mountains so that you can at least, I can be Makayim, the Va'ere part of your Bakosha, even if I'm not able to be Makayim, the Ebrona part of your request. What exactly is the benefit that Moshe Rabbeinu will gain by seeing the land? The fact what we've just said really explains it beautifully. Even though God had not allowed, had not 
had not given in to Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, endless requests, 515 requests, he hadn't at any point lowered his guard and said, you know what, Moshe Rabbeinu, let me think about it, maybe I'm going to let you in. No, 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 the, it was repeated no throughout. Nevertheless, there was one aspect of Moshe Rabbeinu's request that God could, as it were, say yes to, and this was it. This was exactly it. Ulam hu henik lohis damnus lehis basem me oisa ruchnius terufa shahoisa masses nafshoi. He could allow Moshe Rabbeinu to get a sense of this pure spirituality that was the desire of Moshe Rabbeinu's heart. That he could do. That wasn't going against what he'd said earlier after the story of the Be'er. Um, that Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't go into Eretz Yisrael by allowing him to see Eretz Yisrael, he wasn't annulling that vow. He wasn't somehow giving in to Moshe's request. He was simply allowing Moshe Rabbeinu to see. And this is what he said. And God is telling Moshe Rabbeinu as it were, so we get an understanding of what this dynamic was. Adam Poshut, an ordinary individual, Tzarich lavoir ba'aretz b'chdei lispeg memeroim musa. If an ordinary person wants to truly appreciate the land, can't do it from a distance, has to go there, has to be there, has to be a part of it, physically located, geographically located in Eretz Yisrael in order to appreciate its elevated status and its incredible spirituality. Ulam ata b'madregos chagvoya, you, Moshe Rabbeinu, you are the highest level that a human being can ever achieve. You can totally get it. You can completely feel the Kedushas Ha'aretz, the sanctity of the land, and to soak it up, even if you see it from afar. You don't need to be physically located in it. You can be somewhat distant, and see it from the top of Pisgah, and you will be able to soak up that spirituality from the distance that you are at. And therefore I can fulfill your request of Vaeres Aretzatova, but I can't fulfill your request of Ebronoel Aretzatova. Please take a look, go to Rosh Pisgah, take a look at Eretz Yisrael, because I'm not going to let you in, but at least I can, I can give you the pleasure of seeing it which is what you wanted. You, would, you wanted to have that appreciation of Eretz Yisrael that you thought you needed to go into Eretz Yisrael in order to achieve, but I'm telling you that you can do it from a distance from Rosh HaPisgah. The Khan Oleinu Lizgar. And this is the place for us to recall, to remember. We need to remember and remind ourselves constantly on a daily basis and the great merit, the zchus that we have in our generation, in our day. And for the past 70-something years since 1948, it's going to be 75 years since we have the land of Israel in the, in the hands of the Jews, controlled by the Jews. We are, to, the, to a degree, uh, determining our own destiny as the people who run the country that God gave to us. We have seen a fulfillment of prophecy in terms of the kibbutz goliath 
so many Jews, almost if not more than half of all Jews in the world, certainly all Jews who are committed, live in Eretz HaKodesh, live in the Holy Land. And we have been, we've been zeichet to that, we've seen it, but we've also seen something else. Whereas for the entire Jewish history, we always said, We davened every day, And we had in our mind's eye this wonderful picture of what it would be like when we came back, how we would feel now that we've got it. It's just a country. It's just citizens of Israel. People go about their day-to-day -day lives as if it's an ordinary place. And we've lost that sense of awe that we had from when we were a farm, couldn't see it. And we wanted Ebronov era. Ebronov has been fulfilled. Era? I'm not so sure. We go to Eretisrael, and I'm not sure if we have the era element down pat. I'm not sure if we're completely in control of that era, era tova. We're much more into the Ebronar. Let's get onto an Elal flight. Well, maybe not Elal. Maybe let's fly United, American Airlines or British Airways. Get to Eretisrael and find the nicest hotel in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or Elat. And eat the nicest food. And there's plenty of good restaurants and good wine, uh, which is grown all over Eretisrael, particularly in Golan. We can drink all this fantastic wine, eat all this fantastic food. We can appreciate the country and the fact that we've got it back and that we are in control as Jews. We are in control of the destiny of the country, of our heritage and of our legacy. But the era, that mind's eye, that spiritual eye that Moshe Rabbeinu had even from afar, do we have it when we're there? That's what the Mikdash Halevi says, You know what? We have this incredible opportunity in our generation, in our days. We, the Jewish people for 2,000 years, were kept away from the land of our heritage. We have the ability to be there. What is the most important purpose of, of Eretz Yisrael? Is that we have it, that we have the physical territory, that we're in control of a particular location on the map? That's what it's about? Of course not. Our job, our duty, our obligation is to soak up its spiritual nature, shall Eretz Yisrael. If we miss, this, we miss this memo, we don't read the memo, what's the value of having it at all? What's the point of having it at Yisrael? If we don't fully appreciate how special it is and the elevated level, what we call the Romamus Nisgova, this sublime elevation, which Moshe Rabbeinu was, was asking for and he got, he managed to get it from afar. We can get it from being there, but we have to get it. Otherwise, all we're doing there is we're tourists, we may as well go to Turkey, we may as well go to, to some other point on the globe, whichever country that we visit, because it's just about just going to a place. Eretz Yisrael is so much more than that. Now let's look at this final Dvar Torah. The Pasuk says that you mustn't add any mitzvahs to the mitzvahs in the Torah. You're not allowed to invent your own mitzvahs and you're not allowed to reduce the number of mitzvahs. 
We have 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. You can't say, you know what, I like 612 of them, but the 613th, that's not for me. And you can't say if there is a mitzvah, I like doing the mitzvah, but I'm actually going to do more. I don't want to keep one day of Shabbos. I want to keep three days of Shabbos. Why? Because I think Shabbos is so spiritual and so special. I'm going to keep three days of Shabbos. You can't do. sifu. You can't wear a pair of tzitzis with six corners and put tzitzis on each of the corners. There's a, there's a mitzvah to put tzitzis on four corners and that's it. If you have a beged which has six corners, you don't have to put tzitzis on it. It doesn't matter. It's not about the corner. It's not how, how about having an extra fringe on the corner of your beged. No. You can't have a beged with three corners either. That wouldn't be allowed. You, you have to do it in the way that Hashem told you. The next pasuk, Your eyes, the eyes that saw what God did to this horrible idol, We know that all of those Jews who found themselves in the worship of Baal Pa'ur, they were eradicated, they were, they were wiped out. They're not, they were uh, no longer a part of the Jewish dream of being good Jews and following the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. They were, they were written out of the book. It was over for them. Somehow this posuk is written in correlation to the posuk of Baal Toisiv and Loisigru. Says the Mikdash Halevi Lechoyer Yesh Lebar, we need to explain. Ma shaychus bein halav shal Baal Toisiv lebein haposuk habo. What is the connection between the, um, the negative commandment, the prohibition against Baal Toisiv, uh, against adding mitzvahs to the Torah, and the posuk that follows, which talks about, describes the terrible outcome of those uh, who worshipped Baal Pa'ur. What is that? We're talking about this terrible crime, this sin of Avodah Zorah, of uh, worshipping foreign idols, not God in other words. How is this description, this, this uh, you know, uh, this follow-on, this add-on to the previous posuk, what is it adding? How is it enhancing or giving us any kind of explanation or context to the mitzvah of Baal Tosif and Loisigru? The Nira Laima. There's a Gemara in Soita Daftala Domed Beis. Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, listen to what he said, anybody who has in him arrogance, or her arrogance, they'd be arrogant, self-centered people. It's as if they've worshipped pagan idols. Because we have one pasuk in Mishlei that talks about arrogance. Using the word toyeva, an abomination. Uksivhosam is a kind of comparative text, it's a parallel text. And it says in Dvarim, you shouldn't bring this pagan idol into your home. And it uses the word toyeva to describe the pagan idol, the idol that isn't God. And by using this word toyeva, talking about arrogance and talking about Avodazora, the two are brought together as one. Says Rabbi Shimon Be'yechai, and Rabbi Yochanan is quoting him in this Gemara and Soita, anybody who is arrogant, it's as if they've worshipped idols, it's as if they have fallen into the sin of idolatry. Kaloima, Hagmara mashve 
Bein Adam Sheesh Gava. The Gemara is making a practical comparison between someone who is arrogant, Gasses Ruach, Levein Adam Sheoved Avoid Azorah Rachman Litzlan. A person who worships, you would think it doesn't make sense, a heretic, and someone who's arrogant. We seem to be talking about two different things here. And yet, the Gemara is a very powerful Gemara, and here strengthened Mikdash Halevi quotes um, um, uh, Mishnah Shrebeliezer. What does the Mishnah Shrebeliezer says? In Perik Yud, Motzinu Af, Hisbat Uschamura, he says something that expresses it in an even more powerful, stronger way. Listen to what Mishnah Shrebeliezer says. Somebody who is arrogant, it's as if they've made themselves into a god, takes it even to the next level. It's not as if they've worshipped Avodah Zorah, they've made themselves into an Avodah Zorah. From here we can see. Those who invent new mitzvahs, they just create new mitzvahs, whatever it is they come up with. And it doesn't really matter if the mitzvah they made up is something that adds to the mitzvahs in the Torah or reduces, takes away from the mitzvahs in the Torah. It's, it's a demonstration of the most disgusting arrogance of the most vile type of arrogance that anyone can ever display. How would they even have the, the audacity within them to change even the smallest thing from that which the uh, creator of the universe has commanded us? The only way that this could have happened is because it emerges out of their arrogance. They can think that they're even wiser. They know more than the giver of the Torah. Somebody who's that arrogant can say, I understand, Hashem said what he said, but I've got something to add. Or I actually think that what Hashem said makes a lot of sense, but I want to change it in this way. Or in the, What are you talking about? You know better than than God? Are you suggesting that you have an idea that's better than God? They can say, They know better than God what it is worthwhile doing. How arrogant can you get? And that's what it means in Mishnah Rebbe to say, It's as if they've made themselves into a God because they think that they're superior in their knowledge of what needs to be done. From this we can understand that what is the root, the essence of the sin of somebody who's Moisif or someone who's Megareha? It's the arrogance of his personality. I think I know better. I'm the best, I'm the most brilliant, I'm the wisest, I'm the cleverest, I'm the greatest intellect. There's nothing I don't know, and whatever I don't know isn't worth knowing, and what I do know, I'm going, to, I'm going to do whatever I like. There's no humility. There's absolutely no sense of proportion between them and God. As we learnt in the Gemara, in Saita, Somebody who makes themselves arrogant, who allows themselves this liberty of being arrogant and pompous. 
think they know better than anybody else, and certainly if they think they know better than God, that's like being an oive davoide zora, the worst kind of heresy, making yourself into a God. Lefichach. Mazgira ha-Torah eschait ba'al pa'er besmichus le-isur ha-hisofa e-girua me-mitzvay sa-Torah. That's exactly the reason why the second pasuk is in proximity to the first pasuk. To inform us that somebody who does this, somebody who adds to the mitzvahs in the Torah, I think this would be a great mitzvah. We should do it this way. Or somebody who reduces, who says, actually, this mitzvah is not so important. We don't need to do it. That person is an oved avoid It's not just... Just an over, I mean, that in itself would be bad enough. Baal is known to have been the most disgusting, have required you to do the most disgusting acts in its presence. The most disgusting of all the heresies that existed in ancient times of the pagan idols that were worshipped in ancient times was Baal Pa'or. Baal Pa'or. Shall kfira, somebody who's moisif or, or, or is who's guilty of baltoisif or guilty of a loisigru, that person has demonstrated that they have within them the root of kfira, the root of heresy, the zilzal and dismissal. Rachman litzlam be'loikai be'loikai ms nois natera with the God of Truth. He who gave the Torah. It's such a powerful lesson. Our mitzvahs must follow the Messiah of Halacha. That's really it. Do you know what the mitzvah is that we keep? The one that's in the Shulchan Aruch. Not just doing what we fancy, not just deciding, you know, the Shulchan Aruch is good, but I, I know better than the Shulchan Aruch. I want to add another um, stringency. I want to make the mitzvah even stricter because the Shulchan Aruch wasn't strict enough. I feel that we should go the extra mile and adding, and this is what's so powerful about this Torah, adding is as much reformed Judaism as not doing or changing a mitzvah. Reducing the number of mitzvahs, oh, that we all get. If somebody says you don't have to keep Shabbos as long as you keep kosher, you don't have to keep kosher or Shabbos as long as you're a nice person, makes you a good Jew, we understand that that's uh, a form of reform, everybody gets it. But what are the, the, those people who, who've got all the chumras, who want to keep every chumra that exists and create their own? I don't need to mention what I'm talking about. We all get the message. It's also a form of reform. It's another kind of reform, but it's reform. Baltoisif means baltoisif. It says here, says here, loisei sifu sigru. Don't make more and don't make less. Because if you do, you're like an Ovid Avoida Zora. You don't know better than God. Nobody knows better than God. You don't know better than the Messiah of Halacha. You can't decide that the Messiah of Halacha wasn't strict enough or was too strict. The Messiah of Halacha, that's the gold standard. Anything else is Ovid Avoida Zora. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you so much. Thank you.